Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Financial dysfunction and distrust at play in the health system. According to leaked audio obtained by the Business Post, political correspondent Daniel Murray joins us with the latest on this. Here in studio, we'll be discussing Irish neutrality as the US relocates its Kiev embassy due to the acceleration of Russian troop buildup. And Irish documentary maker Bradley Stafford on not wanting to leave the country that he now calls home. Like a full-on invasion. Um, I mean, it's really, it's bizarre to really think it's possible. CNN correspondent Connor Powell joins us from Kiev with the latest developments tonight. And later, as Cupid arrows strike right across Ireland, just how afraid are we of Tinder swindlers? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Welcome. A big story making waves here at home this weekend was a story by the Business Post detailing leaked audio revealing financial dysfunction and distrust in the health system. Here now to tell us more is Business Post political correspondent Daniel Murray. Uh, thanks for joining us on the programme, Daniel. You broke the story this weekend. Um, what was contained in those recordings that alarmed you? Yeah, so myself and Aaron Rogan reported a story on Sunday regarding a, a leaked recording from the Department of Health. It was a meeting of Department of Health officials and uh, they didn't know they were being recorded. So as a result, they were speaking very freely uh, about the health budgetary process and the HSE's finances. And um, there were a number of claims that were made in the recording at, at the meeting uh, of concern. There was claims that new recruitment targets for 2022 of 10,000 staff were simply not going to happen and that only half that target would be met in the end. Um, and there was also a formation of a strategy on how to use the leftover budget from that recruitment that wouldn't happen without explicitly taking it away from recruitment. So kind of maintaining uh, uh, that budget while spending it in other areas. Uh, similarly, officials claimed that Mental Health Minister Mary Butler and her department had allocated 24 million for new developments in mental health this year, even though the HSC had said allegedly it could only spend 10 million. Now, Mary Butler ha has rejected that earlier today, but we can discuss that further. And um, there was also talk of fake targets and overinflated budgets being driven by politicians and the kind of political budgetary process and a suggestion that politicians' expectations needed to be better managed into the future. Uh, one of the very key issues uh, that was revealed in the meeting uh, was a, a presumed financial error in the HSE's 
2020 accounts. And it was speculated that this could relate to hundreds of millions of euro uh, and would require those accounts to be amended this year. And more widely, there was allegations of sloppy financial reporting and forecasting by the HSE, with one official describing a financial report as total garbage. Uh, and officials were also saying they had to spend significant time chasing the HSE every month for figures. So a, a lot of concerns, as you can see. Now, the CEO of the HSE, Paul Reid, has been reacting to this today, as have politicians. What's been the main defence of the situation? Well, there's been a lot of throwing the Department of Health officials under the bus today uh, by the HSE and by members of the government. Uh, but much of what was uh, being, uh, much of that was being done while actually confirming the facts of the piece. Uh, Paul Reid was on radio at various points today and he said it wasn't true that they were chasing fake targets. Uh, but then he went on to confirm that the HSE had informed the Department of Health that they would realistically only be able to recruit 5,500 staff out of that 10,000 uh, target this year. And this is despite that 10,000 target still remaining in place and its associated budget. Uh, Paul Reid also rejected speculation by officials that the prior year adjustment or this correction to their 2020 financial accounts would be in the hundreds of millions. But he then went on to confirm that there would be some kind of adjustment or he presumed there would be some kind of an adjustment uh, and it could be just under 100 million euro. There was no explanation as to how such a fundamental, had, fundamental error had come about. So, so that's something that still uh, has to be discussed. And um, Mary Butler, the minister, junior minister uh, for mental health, also disputed that the HSE ever told her they couldn't spend the budget that her department uh, had allocated to them. Uh, so she's now at odds with senior budgetary officials in her own department and has publicly accused them either of lying or of ignorance, uh, both of which are concerning developments. And briefly, Daniel, the Oireachtas uh, committee hearing um, takes place today with both Paul Reid and the Secretary General of the Department of Health due before it. Um, are you, you likely to see some awkward moments there, a few difficult questions being asked? I think so. Uh, the two men are rarely seen in public together. Um, they used to work together in the Department of Public Expenditure. And with these revelations of this meeting, it's, it's going to be a very interesting committee. Uh, I think Paul Reid is going to face questions on the confidence in the HSE's finances, why targets are being apparently set that can't be met, uh, what the level of this prior year adjustment will be and how that will come about. While Robert Watt himself is likely to face questions about whether or not he believes his officials and whatever answer he gives to that, that will be interesting. Uh, if he does believe his officials, then what's he going to do about the fake targets and financial sloppiness they have complained about? If he doesn't, what's he going to do about officials who apparently are engaging in hour-long meetings about complete fiction? Okay, lots to digest there. Daniel Murray of the Business Post, thank you for that. And our studio panel will be reacting to this story shortly. But first off, uh, Russia's top diplomat has advised President Vladimir Putin to continue talks with the West on Russian security demands amid tensions over Ukraine. The statement by the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, appeared to signal the Kremlin, Kremlin's intention to stay on a diplomatic path, even though the US has warned that Moscow could invade Ukraine at any moment. Well, joining me now from Kiev is CNN correspondent Connor Powell. Thanks for joining us tonight, Connor. Uh, just to bring us up to date, what's the mood like there in Kiev? Um, a lot of talk over the weekend and increasingly a sense that there's, it's in the shadow of possible war. 
Yeah, Claire, despite a hundred thousand, maybe as many as 130,000 Russian troops along their border, Ukrainians have very much adopted the position of keep calm and carry on here. I mean, that's sort of what we've heard from everybody is that, yes, they realize there are Russian troops on their border. And yes, there is this possibility of an invasion. But Ukrainians that we've talked to in different parts of the country have all said that they've lived with the threat of Russian aggression, Russian invasion for years now. And I mean, some people went back for decades and centuries and said this is just part of being a Ukrainian. Um, and so on one hand, life is pretty normal here across the country. Uh, the president, President Zelensky of Ukraine, has gone out of his way to sort of try to lower the tensions, to reassure Ukrainians that things are going to be okay, that he doesn't and his government doesn't see an invasion by Russia anytime soon, that they think the U.S. is sort of blowing this out of proportion. At the same time, though, President Zelensky and his government have been asking the U.S., NATO, and other Western allies for weapons, weapons that have come from Germany, the U.S., England, a whole host of other European nations. They've also asked for not just conventional weapons, rifles, helmets, uh, vests, that type of things, uh, missiles. They've also asked for surface-to-air missiles as well to combat any type of Russian air superiority if there was an attack. That they have not yet got, and that's been a source of irritation from the Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian government that they're not getting these advanced weapons from the United States. So on one hand, the public position here is keep calm. Things are fine. On the other hand, Ukraine is also using this opportunity to get some weapons from the United States and other NATO allies as well, Claire. And Connor, what's happening with the military buildup along the border? That's kind of the big question. There's a lot of things we just don't know. Um, what we do know is that there are anywhere from 100,000 to 130,000 Russian troops, not only along the Russian-Ukrainian border, but there are tens of thousands of Russian troops in neighboring Belarus, along the Belarus, uh, Belarusian and Ukrainian border as well. There are also um, about 30 or so naval ships that are off the coast of uh, the Crimea and southern uh, Ukraine as well. And if you just look at it, it sure does look like an invasion force. The uh, government in Moscow, led by Putin, have said, no, 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 this is uh, just regular military training exercises. Uh, the U.S. and others who are saying that there's an invasion that is imminent that could happen at any moment. Uh, Moscow is saying, no, this is all blown out of proportion. But according to military analysts, this is more than just a training exercise. Whether it's an invasion, we just don't know because nobody really understands what Vladimir Putin is thinking at any given moment. But uh, it is more than a training exercise, whether or not it's an invasion. That's what we have to see. And that is really what we're looking at the next few days is diplomacy. And can diplomacy from the West, along with Moscow, can they deliver some type of agreement that would uh, essentially reduce tensions here? Yeah, and you're talking diplomacy. There have been talks ongoing. Uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz meeting with the Ukrainian president. Um, what's come of that meeting? This is ahead of, of, of the Kremlin uh, summit and talks that will happen there. Nothing concrete has come out of any of these conversations, but what we've gathered from the last week or so when there's been a flurry of diplomatic activity, uh, French President Macron was both here and in Russia. Uh, Olaf Scholz is, uh, Scholz is here, obviously. He's going to Moscow in a couple days as well. Uh, what we understand from the sort of conversations and the statements that have been put out is that Russia has security concerns. Those concerns mainly focus and center around NATO expansion 
it's in the Ukrainian constitution that they want to be part of NATO. And NATO has long made sort of public overtures to Ukraine about someday bringing them into that military alliance, into that fold. That's something that Russia particularly Vladimir Putin, uh, has just sort of said is a red line. He won't allow it. Um, you know, the language we've seen coming out of Vladimir Putin, both in recent days and weeks, and just historically, is this kind of belief that Ukraine is really not a, a single nation. It's part of the Russian nation. It's part of the Russian view, the Russian world. And that's something, obviously, a lot of Ukrainians push at, back against. But, um, you know, there, the, the dialogue that is going on now, according to most people who are listening to what's being said, say, as long as there's dialogue, it sort of is, uh, acts as a barrier to any type of invasion. Most people think that Putin wouldn't launch any type of attack with Schultz here or on his way to Moscow. So, you know, as long as they're still talking, it seems like a good thing. And just in the last couple of hours, Vladimir Putin and his top uh, deputy, as you pointed out, Sergei Lavrov, uh, you know, they sort of said, we're going to continue talking. Uh, negotiations are good. Diplomacy is something we want to continue this week. So uh, there is a sense that, uh, at least for the near future, there's no imminent invasion on the horizon, Claire. Okay, Connor Powell, thank you for joining us for the latest there from Kiev tonight. Well, here in studio now for more on the Business Post story at the top of the programme is Sinn Féin TD David Cullinan, Fianna Fáil TD Paul McAuliffe and Independent Deputy Michael Healy-Ray. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, to come to you first, um, David Cullinan, because we spoke to Daniel Murray there about this Oireachtas Health <coughs> Committee meeting taking place, I think, on Wednesday of this week, where both the HSE CEO, Paul Reid, and the Secretary-General of the Department of Health, Robert Watt, will appear. And you're on that committee, you're a member. What will you be asking them? Well, obviously asking questions in relation to the content of the exchanges between the senior officials in the Department of Health, the HSE and public expenditure and reform. I have to say I wasn't surprised when I read the transcripts because we've known for some time that we don't have an integrated financial management system in the HSE. We've known for some time, if you look back to the resignation that the, the people who resigned from Shalontacare uh, just before Christmas last year, they talked about e-health, ICT infrastructure mm. as reasons why they resigned, uh, no movement on waiting lists uh, and lots of other uh, issues that simply weren't moved on by government. And if you look at uh, what's, what's happening in healthcare at the moment, we have 900,000 people on some form of health waiting list. 900,000. We have 90,000 children on health waiting lists. We have 160,000 people who are waiting over 18 months to see a hospital uh, consultant. And we know that all sorts of promises that have been made by the government have not been uh, met. Targets which have been set are broken time and again. And all of this goes back even when the HSE was established. Michal Martin promised back in 2005 that he would abolish waiting lists, that waiting lists would be gone. Uh, in 2015, we had promises when Leo Varadkar was Minister for Health to again reduce wait times. Yeah, it hasn't and we happened. Do, we know and in for 2017, decades long, we've had decades, decades long problems. But, but if you go back to country, the transcripts of this. I just, yeah, I want to ask you how that links in with this conversation that was had by senior Department of Health officials about what's happening around the finances and the targets set by the HSE. 
Yes, and if you look at what they said, it was in recruitment and also in bed capacity. So two years ago in the budget, the Minister for Health said that he would recruit 17,000 staff in 2021. Only 7,000 were recruited. He then rolled over the funding, which was good, into 2022 into this year. And now of that 10,000 that's remaining, we're being told about 5,500 of those will be recruited, 4,500 will not be. Of the 1,150 beds that were committed to, again, two years ago in the budget, we were told 1,100 additional beds will be brought into the system. 400 of those beds will not be. And I can give you examples. So I was in Nace Hospital uh, last week and they're looking for an endoscopy unit. 2011 they put in for the capital funding it has not been released. Okay, in Kerry Hospital for example okay. there's real problems I was in Kerry before oh, Christmas, really. in Waterford in Cork and Limerick, they're all waiting for capital projects. In Kappa Hospital okay. again children waiting for scoliosis, treatment, children waiting, children with spina bifida waiting uh, for treatment yeah. and, and we've it heard seems this. it takes a lifetime for the HSE to deliver. The waiting list is a huge issue and then at the heart of all of this we're, we're hearing these leaked recordings about fake targets and money not being spent that's been allocated to the HSE and then being put into a fund um, for the following year because it's not being spent in the right place. It, it all sounds like a mess, Paul McAuliffe. Well, look, it's incredibly worrying that after a year when we had a huge cyber attack on the HSE that you can have a recorded conversation of officials and that they wouldn't be so aware of that. So is that your issue, that that conversation not, not was at, recorded? Not at all, but what, what is interesting is, is that there was obviously a very robust conversation about how money is being spent within the department and within, within the HSE. And as somebody, like, I'm elected to the doll not to defend the system. I'm here to try and change it, to reform it, to make it better for people <coughs> who need to yeah. access it. And as a member of the Public Accounts Committee, I'd far rather that discussion happen uh, in advance of the spending ha happening rather than afterwards. Okay. What well, I was very unhappy with Claire though was uh, an attempt to try and picture Minister Mary Butler as somebody who was foisting money uh, onto the HSE that they couldn't spend and it's very clear from all of the, the discussions that had today including Minister Butler's interview uh, earlier today that that just isn't the case and I would far rather... So what are you saying that Department of Health officials sat around and, and made up this stuff? Well, no, let's be clear what, 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 what they said. Uh, they said that there was money that couldn't be spent. And it's very clear, both Paul Reid and Minister Butler said today that the additional monies that were identified, €23 million Euro for mental health services, that's not a make-up number, that's real money that's going to go into eating disorders for people with, with, with uh, intellectual disabilities. It hasn't and mental all been health. spent, though. That, I mean, the, the €23 million, there was sort of no, it, the, million that's of the bu that's the budget. that's the budget for this year, right? Yeah, but, uh, the, but a big part of that is also recruitment, and we know that there's a big is, issue with is. recruitment. But, so but that means, if I wanted even though that money is given out, that, that actually, it, it, when it comes down to it, if you can't get the staff and you can't pay for those staff, you'll have leftover funds. Isn't that the point? If I needed to avail of a clinical programme for, e for an eating disorder, I would far rather have a minister that was being ambitious, that was driving the change in the civil service, that was making sure that there was the All funding right. there. Far rather that than a conservative approach. And okay. le let's be honest, we can't have a conservative okay. approach to health. We need to change it. Okay, a conservative approach is not what's needed now. So the targeted targets that are set, Michael Healy Ray, ambitious as they may be, are ones that need to be set in order to affect change, according to Paul. Well, the very first thing I'd like to say is I'd like to thank Daniel Murray and his colleagues in the Sunday Business Post uh, for breaking this story, because it's very important for everybody in the country to realise and to know and to understand that what we are lacking in the HSE is joined up thinking 
between management of the HSE and the politicians that should be working together, that shouldn't be pulling against each other. And the one thing that I learned over the years was I had the benefit, which I appreciated an awful lot, of serving on the old Southern Health Board. The difference between the Southern Health Board and the HSE, and this actually only came up on Sunday at a health meeting in, in County Kerry, uh, was the fact that the, the HSE at that time, the Southern Health Board as it was, mm. the politicians that were on it, and of course some people thought it was wrong to have the politicians on it. When they formed the HSE, they took the politicians off it. The first thing they had to do was put them back on it again. It was important for politicians to have a say at budget time and to be involved. And is that it, structure, it, that structure yeah. was actually is far greater the, because there was more transparency, there was more responsibility. Politicians had to be responsible for what they were doing. But now we have a time. situation where we don't have those health boards, but we still got the yes. legacy issues. So there's no one yeah. financial. What you, need, what, what you need, the way I wanted to, is yes. with oversight. You need joined up thinking, and it certainly doesn't work to have a minister thinking one way and going one direction and to have management of the HSE going a different direction. Everybody is... No, the, no, but no, but just let me make the point. Paul, what we should all be doing... a real difference yes. in approach. What no. we should be doing is thinking of the patient because that is the important person here. The person who's sick, the person who needs health care in Ireland. They want proper management of the taxpayers' money to make sure that they are getting the services at the time they need them and not to be on waiting lists, indefinite waiting lists, and to, for, for, for politicians to be organising uh, tr uh, trips up to the north to try and get health care that we should have readily available here. It doesn't make sense. Like, well, what happened here, Claire, was that Minister Butler wanted more money for mental health. The HSE said that they could spend up to 35 million euro. The Department of Health seemed to have had some uh, some scepticism about that. Paul Reid is responsible for delivering that, that budget. Uh, he said this morning that he would do that. Minister Butler uh, has, has committed to it. That, that's what we need. We need people who have got huge ambition that are going to make changes, that are going to deliver for patients. What we don't need is, uh, is people who are afraid of making decisions or afraid of allocating money. We need to deliver. But okay. decisions are not being made and that's the so point here. So blamed here, Paul Reid, really, for it? When I think, he's, I think given, the blame lies. given the money um, I think the, and, and how it's spent or not spent, as the case may be. I think the blame is right across the board. Obviously, the Minister for Health has to take responsibility. But the head of the HSE in this state is paid more than the head of the National Health Service. Twice the amount of money is a Taoiseach. And yet we're not having the reforms in healthcare that we need. We were promised the establishment of regional health areas that would align hospital groups with CHO areas so that community care, primary care, acute system would be aligned. It hasn't happened. We were promised a multi-annual waiting list strategy. It hasn't happened. And I go back to some of the examples I gave. I was in Kappa Hospital and I met consultants, I met mm. management. They're looking for 25 million euro to build uh, a new unit so they can treat children with scoliosis and spina bifida. They're not going to get that money this year. Again, I can give you examples of hospitals but right across the state. I was no, in we keep hearing there's no shortage of money. So what's happening? One of the problems is, well, it's not all about money, but not enough money has been given in some areas. But if, if you look at the relationship between the money which was given and then what's actually happening on the ground, mm -hmm. there's no joined up thinking. So we don't have a workforce planning strategy. We know that we can't hire enough GPs. We can't hire enough uh, consultants. We can't hire, hire enough the GPs? nurses. This is the big question that and has that's been why that issue. Recruitment seems to be the number one issue here. So when they get their hands on and the that's money why, that's and they why promise 10,000 jobs, when they try doing it, 
it, they can only fill five and, that's and a why half thousand I've jobs. Engaged, but shouldn't Fame be able to do something about that? That's why I've engaged with the people who are providing the courses as well and the training for uh, specialists. I engaged with the Irish College of General Practitioners only a number of weeks ago. And again, a good example is, is the issue of GPs. The HSE say that we'll need 1,600 additional GPs over the next five years. They also say 500 will retire. That's 2,200 GPs needed over the next five years to stand still. How many are we training? 250 a year. So it will take op- 10 years. The colleges of take course we need, and that's why there's a silo mentality okay. between the Departments of Health yeah. and the Department Michael, of Higher Michael Education. Michael Healy-Race, specifically in Kerry, we've seen that issue around, you know, being a, the inability to get psychiatry services for people who need exactly. it most and for we young saw, people. We saw, as a, as a result of that, was the whole situ- situation where uh, beautiful young children that their parents reached out to the agency to get help and assistance for them and instead the very uh, arm of the state that was charged with taking care of them and helping them instead actually injured them and hurt them and that's the situation in CAMS and uh, it's crazy to think that we uh, are still failing uh, to recruit the proper personnel and we have to try and build up trust again to help those uh, parents and those children and the future parents and the future children who will need help and that is such a serious issue and I actually think it's only the tip of the iceberg at the moment because we're moving up into North Kerry and doing a survey there of what is and a look back there and I mean it's so dramatic what has happened to those families and so traumatic to them it's frightening but one point I want to make about mismanagement and it's just an example. If you take, for instance, a, a local hospital, a Khmer Community Hospital, half of that hospital, the downstairs is opened, upstairs is not. Why? Because we are failing to properly attract the great nurses and the great personnel that we should have working in our, in our health service, and they're not. They're disappearing and they're going away. We have to do everything we can to make it attractive for those people All to right. want to live at home and to work at home and to help us in taking care of sick people. All right, well, we'll see where that story goes this week. As I say, the Oireachtas Health Committee um, will be meeting on Wednesday on that, and we'll leave it there. My panel will be staying with us after the break. Irishman Bradley Stafford on why he doesn't want to leave Kiev. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Welcome back tonight. The German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has assured Kiev that it could rely on his country's support as he prepared to fly to Moscow to discuss the security crisis around Ukraine. Well, earlier tonight I spoke to Irish photographer and documentary maker Bradley Stafford, who's living in Ukraine, about how the situation has changed for him and his wife in recent weeks and why they felt they needed to move away from Kiev for their own safety. Everything that's going on lately, I mean, how it's all kind of kicked it up, uh, picked up, like kicked up a notch. Um, yeah, my wife was getting awfully worried reading stuff in the news, especially the fact that Kiev had been mentioned as a possible target, which is something that we've never had to deal with since we've been here. You know, the war has been going on in the east of Ukraine since 2014, and it's kind of just become a part of daily life. It's, it's, you know, you're kind of used to it. It's in a sense like how <clears throat> life is now with COVID, you know, and, um, but yeah, that being said, my wife wasn't feeling very comfortable in Kiev. And unfortunately she has family um, in a small city called Rivna, uh, 300 kilometers to the west of Kiev and a lot closer to the Polish border. Bradley, do you think fuel is being added to the fire when Western governments have made that call for citizens to leave the Ukraine? Or in this situation, do you think right now, as things stand, that it's warranted? Um, it's hard to really <clears throat> know. I mean, you could make an argument for both cases, really. I mean, um, I can understand why a lot of countries would feel that they're in a position to have to do that. I mean better it's just like with us leaving Kiev you know I mean it's better to kind of get this out of the way earlier than you know leaving it too late but on the other hand I mean most Ukrainians like I said have been dealing with this for the last eight years and because the build-up is so much bigger on the border now in Russia and Belarus and you know the rhetoric coming from Moscow is a lot louder I suppose that um yeah it seems that for whatever reason, that only now is the West really giving it the attention it's kind of deserved, to be honest, since 2014. I think most people would like to think that, you know, something as crazy that has been suggested in various media reports is that something like that could happen in this day and age, like a full-on invasion. Um, I mean, it's really, it's bizarre to really think it's possible. And can you see yourself coming back to Ireland now? My, my, my wife's mum lives here and my wife's grandparents live here and I mean I suppose her mum would be in a position to leave if she really had to. Grandparents, I mean, you know, they're, 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 they're not so young anymore so um, I don't think they'd be very keen and even going to Poland, never mind further afield to Ireland. Um, that's is kind of what the embassy told us though in the email that look we understand most of you probably have ukrainian spouses or family in one way or another and that you know the visa situation is a bit um complicated so um in what in that case we advise you to either travel to poland or czech republic or anywhere in the eu essentially where you can then from there apply for an irish visa because ukrainians don't need a, a visa to enter the eu um so, yeah, coming back to Ireland, I mean, I really hope it doesn't have to come to that. I mean, of course, I'm grateful that I have somewhere in Ireland to go if needs be, but it's not as straightforward for 
my wife or her family members. Well, still here in studio, Sinn Féin's David Cullinan, Fianna Fáil's Paul McAuliffe and independent TD Michael Healy-Ray. Um, to come to you for, first, Paul McAuliffe, on this, um, we heard there from Bradley about his situation. He was in Kiev. He's now um, moved a, a bit away from the capital in, in light of, of you know, what's happening over there. Is it the right call, do you think, for Ireland to join other governments in asking people to leave Ukraine, given that this is a situation, as Bradley himself has said, that you know, people have been living with this in Ukraine for a long time. It's not new. Um, it, it, the tensions have been there. They've been there for several months. In fact, they've been there for many years and the issue is ongoing and yet we're, we're calling on everyone to come home now. Yeah, look, I think, first of all, it's incredibly worrying for many Ukrainian citizens living here in Ireland and their families um, because they will have uh, connections abroad. Um, but it's also incredibly worrying for the 145 people who have registered with the Department uh, of Foreign Affairs. The European Union has had a, a visa waiver uh, for family members of, of EU citizens to allow them. Uh, but because Ireland isn't part of the Schengen uh, Agreement, uh, that isn't uh, as niche uh, for, for those uh, for with Irish citizens. So I would like to see us go a little bit further. We've Talk, the department has talked about being flexible with the with the with the paperwork. I think we need to give a little bit more clarity to people like like Bradley on that. On the bigger picture, look, this is about uh, big powers playing big games, and it's having an impact on real, real people's lives. And when you have a situation where you don't have democratic uh, mandates in in a country like the uh, like um, Russia, uh, really Putin can do whatever he wants, and we're all at his whim. And that's a really dangerous position for for. for for Europe and for the world to be in. Um, what do you think of the situation, Michael? Because uh, I was looking at Finney McGrath, an independent TD, was coming out today saying, you know, the EU and NATO and the media need to dial this down. Well, the first thing that I'd say when a superpower is thinking of imminently doing what they might be thinking of doing is the first thing they'd have to say is why, for what gain, at what cost, and what the repercussions around the world would be for them afterwards. Now, it's obvious, of course, that Putin can do whatever he likes, but they have been uh, dancing around this for a long time, and I would hope that they would listen to the pleas uh, for the diplomacy and talks and uh, use the, the arms, the political arms that are there through their ambassadors, uh, through the discussions that are going on over in America, uh, with the Germans who are playing a very important role in all of this, in just trying to put a water hose on this to calm it down. Because all that's going to happen if <coughs> there is an invasion is that innocent people are going to lose their lives. And I think that in this time in the world, we have so many other crises, we have so many other problems to deal with. Man's inhumanity to man, there is no sense in it. And people like Putin, they should really think to themselves, why would they want to do this? And why would they want to be, uh, as a result of their actions, killing innocent people? Well, okay, well, I suppose there's what Ireland does in all of this. And we're clearly very, we are within the EU, so we're aligned to that. And it was interesting to see how the Taoiseach had said that we're not politically neutral in all of this. He said this a couple of weeks ago, but... Um, we, we're not politically neutral, but we are military neutral. Do you think, realistically, that we are can call ourselves a neutral country now, David Cullinan? Yes, I do. And I think the vast, vast majority of Irish people take pride in the fact that we are a neutral country and we have a very strong record in relation to peacekeeping. 
and we don't have to stay neutral politically, as was said in relation to what's happening in the Ukraine. Of course we can stand against Putin, of course we can stand against Russia. I think there is a very, very real, understandable fear in the Ukraine. We got a glimpse of that a couple of moments ago. And it's understandable because of the aggression and the build-up of troops on the Ukraine border. That's real. That isn't imagined. And obviously there is fear, but I think there's also hope and diplomacy has to win out. I hope it does. We have to de-escalate the situation. I want to see talks. And I agree, Claire, that all options have to be on the table and the Irish government supporting all options on the table yeah. in relation to potential sanctions against Russia if there is any uh, act of aggression. I was interested in something, uh, it was uh, Richard Boyd Barrett had said, said that the, the government has rightly condemned the Russia action, but it has not criticised a clear agenda, he says, by NATO to expand eastwards. So, you know, we are politically aligning ourselves very much with the US and the broader EU and NATO's stance on all of this. Do we, I know that we, we say that we, we don't have to be uh, politically neutral in all of this, but, but where does the book stop? Well, I think, as Michael said, games are being played, uh, and, and of that there is no doubt. But the Ukraine is an independent country. We have to support that independent country. And, you know, th that's how I see it. And I think it's a very dangerous situation. I understand completely the fear that's in the country. And as a small nation, as a, a neutral country, I think we have a very important role to play, to speak out against what's happening in the Ukraine, yeah. to speak out against what Russia and Putin is doing, and to stand up for a small country that is obviously under real uh, pressure. Okay, um, let's just talk about the flights then stopping at Shannon and all of that and where that plays into all of this, Paul McAuliffe, because if this does escalate and we see US troops coming through Shannon to go on to Ukraine or we see, you know, arms being taken um, and, you know, landing in at Shannon and then being moved on, should we call that out? Should we do something about that? Yeah, look, I think David is right. Irish people are very proud of the tradition we have of, of military neutrality. But we also have a tradition of independent foreign policy. It's something that I know within Fianna Fáil we're particularly pr proud of. Well, what do you say about the Shannon flights then? What do you say about the fact that we, because we can't man up on our seas, the RAF are patrolling for us? How, how does that sit with our neutrality? Well, look, I, I, think, I think Shannon uh, is, is a more subtle version of the point I was making, that uh, we can call out uh, both, both sides of this debate uh, both sides of this conflict and say that you need to come to the table, you, you need to, you need to how, prioritise How is the Shannon diploma. situation a subtle well, take on that? No, look, look, what I'm saying is what happens in Shannon is about refuelling, OK? And there's debates um, on both sides about whether that compromises our neutrality or not. Suce successive governments have said that it doesn't and it doesn't align us militarily. And I agree with, I agree with them on that. But I, I don't think that that stops us from calling out uh, the militarisation on both sides here. But let's be clear, it, it, this is, a, there's a significant build-up on the border of an independent country, which is Ukraine. Its territorial border is being, has been compromised already by Russia and, and is, be, is being threatened. So we, we need to be clear about what is actually happening here. Of course, of course we don't want to see an escalation, but that doesn't, shouldn't stop us calling out uh, and supporting an independent country whose territory shouldn't <coughs> be compromised. I think most reasonable people would see that allowing any foreign country to use our airports and Shannon Airport is not in line with our neutrality. And what I don't want 
want to see is we have seen our defence forces run down. He gave the example of the RAF uh, who have to patrol uh, our uh, seas as well. That's absolutely wrong and that can't be used as a Trojan horse than for people who wanted to do away with our neutrality. I think Irish people are quite rightly proud as a small country of our peacekeeping so we efforts. Spend, we need to start spending on, uh, on, absolutely. A, on our military. Would you agree with I, that? Well, I think the only person who's actually questioning our neutrality is perhaps ourselves because nobody around the world is questioning us. I think they recognise us for being neutral. They recognise the massive efforts that our great peacekeeping uh, troops have done around the world and the efforts that they have made and, uh, and the price that we have paid in many instances for that. And uh, I think that that's important. But uh, while, while acknowledging that, definitely politically we should not be silent and we should not be neutral right. in, in, in our political uh, resistance against anything that uh, breaks peace and ends up okay. as a result in killing people. All right, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to the panel after the break. Tinder Swindler, how to protect yourself against dating sites. Stay with, with us. Welcome back now. Netflix's latest documentary, The Tinder Swindler, has caused quite a stir online as it shows how a con man's scamming millions of euro from his victims. But what are the signs that people should be looking out for? Well, joining me now to discuss is managing director of Intro Matchmaking, Fergal Harrington, and sex educator and host of the Glow West podcast, Dr. Caroline West. You're both very welcome along to the show tonight. On Valentine's night, I really appreciate you coming in, Fergal. I'm sure you had big Pleasure. plans, romantic plans at home. Oh, she understands. <laughs> <laughs> so much appreciated. So, yeah, when we are staying with love, um, but Romeo scams, it's, it's, it's becoming a big thing. Obviously, this documentary has mm -hmm. shown it up, but we've heard about this before when people go online, they put themselves in that vulnerable situation um, and that they could find themselves targeted uh, by people who don't have good, their best interests at heart. Um, tell us about, I guess, the dating world right now and where you're seeing it from a matchmaking perspective. Yeah, so we're going 11 years now and over the last two years uh, we've seen a massive rise. I mean, 2021 was up 39% uh, on our biggest year and busiest year ever. So I suppose people took stock, they focused their attention on where they wanted to really be and where they were going to prioritise their lives and it was with company, it was people, it was relationships. In the past it was all distractions with work and climbing the ladder and making money and whatever else, whereas the two years of isolation really made people focus their attention on where I really want to be. Well, it was a two-year gap in yeah. dating as well for plenty of people and then they want to meet someone and they want it to happen quickly. Exactly, but 80% of people in the past used to meet in college work or socially and then when there's remote working e-learning and you can't socialize what do people do tinder pof bumble hinge all the online dating apps all those things people are growing very tired of them and mm -hmm. they call me every single day and say are there any decent people left out there and i say yes why where are you looking and they often say tinder and bumble so i say well you need to put yourself into a pool of like-minded individuals that actually are invested in this and yeah, that's why and I, it, it's heightened people's sense of what is fake and what is real online. Is meeting, um, you know, or being catfished, is that, a, is that a real concern of people when they go online? And is it happening regularly enough to, you know, is it reflective in what we're seeing in, in documentaries like that one? 100%. Uh, romance fraud is up 86% in 2021, according to the Guardian, and 70% of the victims were women. 
So it is 100% and it's making people really paranoid and it's stopping people from actually putting themselves out there. I mean, Tinder isn't all bad. There are genuine people on those sites and on those apps, but it's just, it's being prepared to, to, to look out for the telltale signs. Yeah, uh, Caroline, to bring you in on this and venturing back into the dating world after, you know, a couple of years in lockdown, it's daunting for, for many people. And also when you're putting yourself out there, you're putting yourself in quite a vulnerable position, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And when we're a bit rusty, we kind of miss some of the red flags that, that might help us protect ourselves against these kind of swindlers or fraudsters or just abusive people, whether that's emotionally abusive or physically abusive, because we know that toxic relationships are actually really, really common in Irish society. and We don't really get any education on them. So if we can educate ourselves about how to protect ourselves, it's not necessarily the app that's a problem. It's the human that's a problem, you know, so we we know that there's three red flags that we have to look out for. That's the general behavior of the person, their sexual behavior and your gut feeling when you are around them. You know, if something feels wrong, if you feel like you're walking on eggshells, if they refuse to apologize, if they're not asking for consent, if they're pressurizing you, all those things. And even things like love bombing is really, really common. But we don't often know what that is and we don't know the language that's there. And that's when things are, you know, very excessive and over the top and very fast paced. And when when you're lonely and looking for love, that can be quite attractive to people. So you can understand why people fall for these kind of scams. And how easy can that be to identify before you meet them in person? Um, how, how can you tell from a kind of online back and forth that this person isn't necessarily uh, the best for them? Yeah, you can monitor how fast they want to meet. You know, if they're telling you they have like a really great feeling about you immediately, well, they haven't met you. You know, they're kind of building up that picture of you in their head. Um, if they really want to push you into meeting and you're not really feeling as comfortable, you know, notice how they are responding to that. Because what you've done is set a boundary and you've said, I want to wait a bit longer. And they've said that's not OK. So if they're pushing your boundaries already, you know, that that's a sign that they're not actually respecting you as a person. Um, if they're you know, if they mess up and maybe say something that we don't agree with, their reaction will be quite telling. You know, if they apologize in a quite a genuine way, that's a good sign. But if they get defensive or they blame you or they minimize your, you, you know, their behavior and blame your response to it, that's a huge red flag. Yeah, and Fergal, I suppose you're you're the, the, the competitor to Tinder, but you charge for that. So people have to pay in order to go down the traditional dating agency route if they don't just meet someone in a bar or on a night out. Um, and, and for that service, you still run the risk potentially of meeting the wrong person or someone who can, you know, scam you out of money or take advantage of you. There's still that risk, isn't there? There's always going to be a risk, but I suppose people will be very much deterred from doing that if they're signing up to a dating agency, spending money and signing terms and conditions that are seven pages long, which is what they're doing. So never in 11 years has anyone ever misrepresented themselves or anything like that ever happened, thankfully. So do you get older people coming to you as a result? Like, it's, you know, if you don't have to pay for it, if it's free, it's something mm. that's kind of accessible to everybody. So it's, yeah. it's, it's open forum. But if you're, if you're paying for that, is your client base older in that regard now? 20 to 93 is oh. the age range. So 20-year-olds are leaving Tinder 
to go down the traditional matchmaking route. A lot of the time they wouldn't even go near Tinder in the first place because they're so conscious and concerned with privacy and confidentiality. A lot of people in Ireland will, will say, I'll go on Tinder because, well, I'm only having the crack. It's the Irish mentality of I'm just having fun. I don't really want it to work out. I'm only looking for a few one night stands. But then there's other really genuine people who are really looking for long term committed relationships. So if you mix those two people and types of personalities up on the likes of a Tinder, mm. you're going to lead to a huge amount of just tiring, you know, exhaustion of online dating. God, that's a lot of their disposable income, isn't it? It is. At the, at the same time, trying to, <laughs> you know, get, get a home and get ahead. It's a, it's a lot to be doing. Um, Caroline, I suppose back to you on this and setting boundaries. That's important when meeting someone online um, and do people you know women in particular have that fear before going on a tinder date about you know how to broach that yeah it's kind of scary because there's a lot of people who have very negative reactions to being told no or that you're not really interested in them and obviously we worry about our safety and you know historically women have been quite vulnerable to violence if they're you know out on a date or they're in an unsafe place and that's obviously not great so I suppose you know putting things in place to make sure you are as safe as possible um, and having maybe standard set lines so one that you know can come in handy is saying like oh you know I like you but I don't think that we're on the same page and where we're looking for. So that kind of like stock set of answers can help you, you know, get out of that situation a little bit easier. Some people aren't great at just saying no or speaking up or you might, you know, women are often socialized into being nice or to be kind. And um, so it's hard to say no. But I think, you know, being a lot more confident in saying that no helps you get to that right person for you. All right. Well, we hope that'll People are enjoying tonight and there's lots of romance out there for the night that's in it. Uh, that is it from us. My thanks to Fergal and to Caroline from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.